Chapter Fifty of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Fifty. The Sheep Fair. Troy touches his wife's hand. Greenhill was the Nijni Novgorod of South Wessex and the busiest, merriest, noisiest day of the whole statute number was the day of the sheep-fair. This yearly gathering was upon the summit of a hill which retained in good preservation the remains of an ancient earthwork, consisting of a huge rampart and entrenchment of an oval form encircling the top of the hill, though somewhat broken down here and there. To each of the two chief openings on opposite sides a winding road ascended, and the level green space of ten or fifteen acres, enclosed by the bank, was the site of the fair. A few permanent erections dotted the spot, but the majority of visitors patronized canvas alone for resting and feeding under during the time of their sojourn here. Shepherds who attended with their flocks from long distances started from home two or three days, or even a week, before the fair, driving their charges a few miles each day, not more than ten or twelve, and resting them at night in hired fields by the wayside at previously chosen points, where they fed, having fasted since morning. The shepherd of each flock marched behind, a bundle containing his kit for the week strapped upon his shoulders and in his hand his crook, which he used as the staff of his pilgrimage. Several of the sheep would get worn and lame, and occasionally a lambing occurred on the road. To meet these contingencies there was frequently provided to accompany the flocks from the remoter points a pony and wagon, into which the weekly ones were taken for the remainder of the journey. The weathery farms, however, were no such long distance from the hill, and those arrangements were not necessary in their case. But the large united flocks of Bathsheba and Farmer Boldwood formed a valuable and imposing multitude which demanded much attention, and on this account Gabriel, in addition to Boldwood's shepherd and Cane Ball, accompanied them along the way, through the decayed old town of Kingsbere, and upward to the plateau, old George the dog, of course, behind them. When the autumn sun slanted over Greenhill this morning, and lighted the dewy flat upon its crest, Nebulous clouds of dust were to be seen, floating between the pairs of hedges which streaked the wide prospect around in all directions. These gradually converged upon the base of the hill, and the flocks became individually visible, climbing the serpentine ways which led to the top. Thus, in a slow procession, they entered the opening to which the roads tended, multitude after multitude, horned and hornless, blue flocks and red flocks, buff flocks and brown flocks, even green and salmon-tinted flocks, according to the fancy of the colorist and custom of the farm. Men were shouting, dogs were barking, with greatest animation, but the thronging travellers in so long a journey had grown nearly indifferent to such terrors, though they still bleated piteously at the unwantedness of their experiences. A tall shepherd, rising here and there in the midst of them, like a gigantic idol, amid a crowd of prostrate devotees. The great mass of sheep in the fair consisted of South Downs and the old Wessex horned breeds. To the latter class Bathsheba's and Farmer Boldwood's mainly belonged. These filed in about nine o'clock, their vermiculated horns lopping gracefully on either side of their cheeks in geometrically perfect spirals, a small pink and white ear nestling under each horn. 
Before and behind came other varieties, perfect leopards as to the full, rich substance of their coats, and only lacking the spots. There were also a few of the Oxfordshire breeds, whose wool was beginning to curl like a child's flaxen hair, though surpassed in this respect by the effeminate Leicesters, which were in turn less curly than the Cotswolds. But the most picturesque by far was the small flock of Exmoors, which chanced to be there this year. Their pied faces and legs, dark and heavy horns, tresses of wool hanging round their swarthy foreheads, quite relieved the monotony of the flocks in that quarter. All these bleating, panting, and weary thousands had entered, and were penned before the morning had far advanced, the dog belonging to each flock being tied to the corner of the pen containing it. Alleys for pedestrians intersected the pens, which soon became crowded with buyers and sellers from far and near. In another part of the hill an altogether different scene began to force itself upon the eye towards midday. A circular tent, of exceptional newness and size, was in course of erection here. As the day drew on, the flocks began to change hands, lightening the shepherds' responsibilities, and they turned their attention to this tent and inquired of a man at work there, whose soul seemed concentrated on tying a bothering knot in no time, what was going on. "'The Royal Hippodrome performance of Turnpike's Ride to York and the Death of Black Bess,' replied the man promptly, without turning his eyes or leaving off tying. As soon as the tent was completed, the band struck up highly stimulating harmonies, and the announcement was publicly made. Black Bess, standing in a conspicuous position on the outside, as a living proof, if proof were wanted, of the truth of the ocular utterances from the stage over which the people were to enter. These were so convinced by such genuine appeals to heart and understanding both, that they soon began to crowd in abundantly. Among the foremost being visible Jan Coggins and Joseph Poorgrass, who are holiday-keeping here to-day. "'That's the great ruffin pushing me!' screamed a woman in front of Jan, over her shoulder at him, when the rush was at its fiercest. "'How can I help pushing ye when folk behind push me?' said Coggan, in a deprecating tone, turning his head towards the aforesaid folk as far as he could, without turning his body, which was jammed as in a vice. There was a silence, then the drums and trumpets again set forth their echoing notes. The crowd was again ecstasized, and gave another lurch, in which Coggan and Poorgrass were again thrust by those behind, upon the women in front. "'Oh, the helpless female should be at the mercy of such ruffins!' exclaimed one of the ladies again, as she swayed like a reed shaken by the wind. "'Now,' said Coggan, appealing in an earnest voice to the public at large, as it stood clustered about his shoulder-blades. "'Did ye ever hear such an unreasonable woman as that? Upon my carcass, neighbours, if I could only get out with this cheese-ring, the damn women might eat the show for me.' "'Oh, don't lose your temper, Jan,' implored Joseph Poorgrass in a whisper. "'They might get their men to murder us, for I think by the shine in their eyes that they be a sinful form of womankind.' Jan held his tongue, as if he had no objection to be pacified to please a friend, and they gradually reached the foot of the ladder, poor grass being flattened like a jumping-jack, and the sixpence, for admission, which he had got ready half an hour earlier, having become so reeking hot in the tight squeeze of his excited hand, that the woman in spangles, brazen rings set with glass diamonds, and with chalked face and shoulders, who took the money of him, hastily dropped it again, from a fear that some trick had been played to burn her fingers. 
So they all entered, and the cloth of the tent, to the eyes of an observer on the outside, became bulged into innumerable pimples, such as we observe on a sack of potatoes, caused by the various human heads, backs, and elbows at high pressure within. At the rear of the large tent there were two small dressing tents. One of these, allotted to the male performers, was partitioned into halves by a cloth, and in one of the divisions there was sitting on the grass, pulling on a pair of jack-boots, a young man whom we instantly recognise as Sergeant Troy. Troy's appearance in this position may be briefly accounted for. The brig aboard which he was taken to Budmouth Roads was about to start on a voyage, though somewhat short of hands. Troy read the articles and joined, but before they sailed a boat was dispatched across the bay to Lullwind Cove. As he had half suspected, his clothes were gone. He ultimately worked his passage to the United States, where he made a precarious living in various towns as professor of gymnastics, sword exercise, fencing, and pugilism. A few months were sufficient to give him a distaste for this kind of life. There was a certain animal form of refinement in his nature, and however pleasant a strange condition might be whilst privations were easily warded off, it was disadvantageously coarse when money was short. There was ever present, too, the idea that he could claim a home and its comforts did he but choose to return to England and Weatherbury Farm. Whether Bathsheba thought him dead was a frequent subject of curious conjecture. To England he did return at last, but the fact of drawing nearer to Weatherbury abstracted its fascinations, and his intention to enter his old groove at the place became modified. It was with gloom he considered on landing at Liverpool that, if he were to go home, his reception would be of a kind very unpleasant to contemplate, for what Troy had in the way of emotion was an occasional fitful sentiment, which sometimes caused him as much inconvenience as emotion of a strong and healthy kind. Bathsheba was not a woman to be made a fool of, or a woman to suffer in silence, and how could he endure existence with a spirited wife? to whom at first entering he would be beholden for food and lodging. Moreover, it was not at all unlikely that his wife would fail at her farming, if she had not already done so, and he would then become liable for her maintenance. And what a life such a future of poverty with her would be, the spectre of Fanny constantly between them, harrowing his temper and embittering her words. Thus, for reasons touching on distaste, regret, and shame commingled, he put off his return from day to day, and would have decided to put it off altogether if he could have found anywhere else the ready-made establishment which existed for him there. At this time, the July preceding the September in which we find him at Greenhill Fair, he fell in with a travelling circus which was performing in the outskirts of a northern town. Troy introduced himself to the manager by taming a restive horse of the troop, hitting a suspended apple with a pistol-bullet fired from the animal's back when in full gallop, and other feats. For his merits in these, all more or less based upon his experiences as a dragoon guardsman, Troy was taken into the company, and the play of Turpin was prepared with a view to his personation of the chief character. Troy was not greatly elated by the appreciative spirit in which he was undoubtedly treated, but he thought the engagement might afford him a few weeks for consideration. It was thus, carelessly, and without having formed any definite plan for the future, that Troy found himself at Greenhill Fair, with the rest of the company, on this day. And now the mild autumn sun got lower, and in front of the pavilion the following incident had taken place. 
Bathsheba, who was driven to the fair that day by her odd man, Poorgrass, had, like everyone else, read or heard the announcement that Mr. Francis, the great cosmopolitan equestrian and rough rider, would enact the part of Turpin, and she was not yet too old and careworn to be without a little curiosity to see him. This particular show was by far the largest and grandest in the fair, a horde of little shows grouping themselves under its shade like chickens round a hen. The crowd had passed in, and Bolwood, who had been watching all the day for an opportunity of speaking to her, seeing her comparatively isolated, came up to her side. "'I hope the sheep have done well to-day, Mrs. Troy,' he said nervously. "'Oh, yes, thank you,' said Bathsheba, colour springing up in the centre of her cheeks. "'I was fortunate enough to sell them all just as we got upon the hill, so we hadn't to pen them at all.' "'And now you are entirely at leisure?' "'Yes, except that I have to see one more dealer in two hours' time. Otherwise I should be going home.' He was looking at this large tent and the announcement. "'Have you ever seen the play of Turpin's Ride to York? Turpin was a real man, was he not?' "'Oh, yes, and perfectly true, all of it. Indeed, I think I've heard Jan Coggan say that a relation of his knew Tom King, Turpin's friend, quite well.' "'Coggan is rather given to strange stories connected with his relations, we must remember. I hope they can all be believed.' "'Yes, yes, we know Coggan. But Turpin is true enough. You have never seen it played, I suppose?' "'Never. I was not allowed to go into these places when I was young. Hark! What's that prancing? How they shout!' "'Black Bess just started off, I suppose. Am I right in supposing you would like to see the performance, Mrs. Troy?' "'Please excuse my mistake, if it is one. "'But if you would like to, I'll get a seat for you with pleasure.' Perceiving that she hesitated, he added, "'I myself shall not stay to see it. I've seen it before.' Now Bathsheba did care a little to see the show, and had only withheld her feet from the ladder because she feared to go in alone. She had been hoping that Oak might appear, whose assistance in such cases was always accepted as an inalienable right, but Oak was nowhere to be seen, and hence it was that she said, "'Then if you will just look in first to see if there's room, I think I will go in for a minute or two. And so, a short time after this, Bathsheba appeared in the tent, with Boldwood at her elbow, who, taking her to a reserved seat, again withdrew.' 